Humanity Church podcast, a place where meaningful conversations around living by faith, being known by love, and becoming a voice of hope are shared with the world every week. We hope that you enjoy this podcast and will join us live on Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, online or at the historic Fox Theater in beautiful downtown Pomona. We also host humanity groups that meet all throughout the city and online to continue the conversation and support you in your ongoing spiritual journey. Find one near you by visiting humanitychurch.com. If you would like to financially support this podcast or the ongoing work at Humanity Church, you can text any donation amount to 84321 and give directly from your phone. Now, here's this week's podcast. All right. Good morning, Humanity Church. How are you doing this morning? Awesome. Good to be with you guys. My name is Nathan Abraham. I'm our lead pastor. Excited to be with you guys today. Uh, let's pray before we jump into our conversation. Jesus, thank you for your presence here and for just the, the air that we get to inhale and exhale and how it brings life to our bodies, God. And I pray that your spirit would do the same to our soul, our heart today, that we would inhale you and exhale everything else, God, uh, and that we might find life today in this conversation through your scriptures. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we started a conversation two weeks ago called Proof of Life, and we're going through this book uh, in the scriptures, 1 John, taking a look at what it means to be fully alive. See, most people never examine or ask that question, am I fully alive? Are things actually working? Are, am I firing on all full five cylinders? Until things get really bad, or until they're spiritually dead, or they hit burnout out in some way. And usually then people go to see a therapist or a pastor or a doctor or a counselor or go to a meeting or get help. And part of my longing for this conversation over the next few weeks is that we would become a community that is regularly checking our spiritual vital signs to check in to see, am I alive? Am I fully alive here and now? I got this new Apple Watch a few months ago, and it's interesting because it has an O2 monitor on it. And so it's always informing me of my oxygen levels. And of course, we've become keenly aware of oxygen levels during the pandemic and how important they are. And, and most people only check their oxygen levels when they're sick or when they're like struggling to breathe in some way, shape, or form. But, but mine's constantly monitoring my oxygen levels. And it's interesting. One of the things I found is that when I'm stressed, I go into really shallow breathing. And this has actually helped me to know when I'm stressed because it's checking my physical vital signs of like, hey, your O2 levels are dropping. You should probably take a deep breath, right? And it's constantly monitoring my vital signs to tell me what I need to do to shift to be vibrant. And in the same way, there are certain spiritual vital signs that it can form us of where we're at spiritually to know what needs to shift to move forward. And, and it's my longing that we would be the people who are constantly checking that. That we'd be constantly going through an analysis, uh, a checklist of, hey, where am I in this thing called life? And last week, we, we talked about the first test. We called it this light test. That we as human beings were made to live in the light. We were made to be open with our life. We, we were actually designed to share our struggles and our pain and our heartbreak and the areas that are disappointing and the darkness and the brokenness that lives inside of us. Because it's in that space where we're living life in the open when we're stepping into the light that shame and judgment and condemnation suddenly dissipate. In fact, when you're living life in the light, it's impossible to live in a space of judgment and shame and condemnation. And those are the things that actually move us towards death. That we were made for light. And one of the signs that you are fully alive is that you live a confessional life and you're willing to step into the light with others. 
And so we're going to take a look at this second test today to inform us of if we are alive. And we're going to call this test the passion test. You know, some of you in this room, you'd probably describe yourself as a passionate person. You would say, yeah, I'm a passionate person. I have passion in my life. Others of you would say, not so much. That, that maybe your life's a little more subdued, that you're a little more reserved, that when people think about you, they're not like, oh man, they're such a passionate person. And actually, one of the questions that I love asking of people is, hey, what are you passionate about? And I love the answers because it's always fascinating. This is one of the questions that I asked some of the medical students at Western University that I teach over there at a course uh, every year. And it's fascinating to talk to these young medical students of asking them, what are you, what are you, what are you passionate about? In other words, if you, if you weren't going into medicine, what would you be doing? And the, the, the answers are always incredible. I'd be a soccer player. I'd be a chef. I, I would go to acting school. It's always interesting to find the answers to what are you passionate about? And you know what I found is that most people have not thought through that question. When asked, what are you passionate about? Most people look at me kind of like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I think we're much more comfortable with the question of what do you do, right? Because if we ask the question, what do you do? You immediately have an answer. Oh, I, this is my job, or this is what I do with my time, or, or these are the things that, that I give my time to, but they're not actually the same. So it begs the question, what is passion? See, I think we think of passion as a strong emotion. That's oftentimes how we relate to passion. And there are certain uh, emotions that we would say are passion emotions. Like, how many of you find anger being a passionate emotion? Come on, let's be honest, right? How many of you get really passionate in your anger? Or you get really passionate in your, your love or your affection for one another? Maybe you find yourself passionate when, when it comes to hope or beauty. Maybe some of you even have, have passion around your hate for certain people or certain things. It just, you get your blood boiling, it gets it going. And, and I'm sure there's an aspect of passion that comes to all of that, but I'm going to ask you to consider that, that that's a very small aspect of what passion actually is. See, I actually believe that passion is the object of one's desires or affections. That passion is the thing that, that our energy and our resource and, and all of our being goes towards in any given moment. Well, when we talk about passion, I'm talking about where does your energy go? What wakes you up in the morning? Where, where, where do you spend your resources and your time and, and the places that are precious to you? What, what keeps you going in life? See, guys, I think that's a better direction towards passion. Because if passion is the object of our love, humans always become what they love. And so it'd be important to know, what am I passionate about? Where does my energy and my attention and my focus go towards? Because I can guarantee you that whatever it is, that's who and what you will become in the future. There is this law in the law of physics, the law of the conservation of matter. And it basically states that matter cannot be created, nor can it be destroyed. In other words, there's only a set number of atoms that are available to us in the universe. No more will be made, and you can't destroy them. And so they may take different forms, they may be transformed, but we're, just, we're simply taking the same number of atoms and manipulating them around in different forms to create different things. Here's the thing that I'd like for you to consider, is that while there is also a law of the conservation of matter, I would say that there is a law of the conservation of passion. And that you, as a human being, were made for passion. You were made to be a passionate individual and that you cannot get rid of. 
Just like it's impossible to destroy matter, it is impossible to destroy the passion that lives inside of you. You cannot get rid of it. It is actually a unique part of your design, your energy, your love, your intention, your focus, your drive, all directs your life in some way, shape, or form, whether you're aware of it or not. And you cannot destroy it, but you can direct it like electricity. This week we had a new outlet installed in our backyard and when I had the electrician come over, he was analyzing where all the plugs were in our garage and where the electricity was flowing and, and he was explaining to me like, we're gonna have to take the electricity that's flowing from here and we're gonna have to direct it down here to where we want this new outlet and so we'll do all the work to make sure that happens. And, and I thought to myself, this is exactly like what happens with our passion. It does, it's not like we added electricity. We just redirected it to this new place where it could be more useful, where it could actually create good for us in our family. And what, what's been interesting and fascinating in the examination of religion specifically is that most religion is an attempt to suppress passion in some way, shape, or form. It's, it's, it's begging you to, to consider, don't, don't stoop so low that you're beyond repair, and make sure that you don't go too high, because if you go too high, you might find yourself running the risk of another type of damage in that. And there are all these invisible boundaries that we live in, and most of religion is designed, quite frankly, to minimize suffering and to curb desire to keep you somewhere in the in-between of that. And what happens when we find ourselves there is we just end up managing our evil. When you talk about religion, oftentimes people think of it as just, I need to manage my evil. And it gets really confusing, like the, the rules get really hard to follow because it's like, don't dream too big because you might find yourself becoming prideful and then you're evil. But, but, but also don't be a sloth, right? Don't do nothing because then you're going to be slothful and then you're evil too. So it's like, how do I do this, right? How do I stay in between all these boundaries to make sure I just simply don't become evil? See, I think that some people in our culture try to live carbon neutral lives. What I found is that, that Christians tend to live passion neutral lives. They're trying to figure out, how do I mitigate my impact on myself and other people with this thing called passion? And what ends up happening is that we just end up living a mediocre life. We end up living a life that's defined as meh, right? We just live meh lives. They're not really exciting, and we're not in the depths of despair, but they're just somewhere in between, and it's manageable here in the middle. And I'm going to ask you to consider something that God might actually be right in the middle of your passion. That, that, that your passion was not a design flaw, but it was actually the thing that was designed to wake you up in the morning and to move you forward, that it was an asset. And John talks about this in the second proof, but he uses words that we traditionally don't associate with passion. As I wanna take us to this second proof of life in 1 John chapter three. He says this, all who have hope in him purifies themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. 
So we're going to take a look at a very loaded word this morning, and I know a lot of you are here to see someone baptized, so this may be even more loaded for you. But we're going to take a look at this word, sin. See, I think most of us, when we, when we read passages like this, we, we ask ourselves the question, in some way, shape, or form, man, what bad things do I need to stop doing? Yeah. Right? But when we, when we have a conversation about sin in the scriptures, we immediately go to this conversation of, all right, where are all the places that I'm screwing up, and how do I stop doing all those things? Or that we think God is having this conversation because he's like, I know what you did last summer. Right? And he's like, and so we're just going to have this conversation because it's been on my mind this whole time and it's been bugging me. And I think when we have the conversation around sin, these are the wrong questions that we need to be answering, and it's actually the wrong mentality that we bring into this. See, because I think in this conversation around sin, the greater question that God is moving us into is how do I redirect my passion so that I remain fully alive? How do I redirect all of my energy and my focus and my attention and everything that's inside of me, my drive towards the place that will actually move me towards life? See, what if God was right in the middle of your passion and your energy and he wasn't looking for you to mitigate it, to protect you from being evil, but he wanted you to turn it on full blast and then direct it towards the places and the things and the people and the activities that would actually move you to the most abundant expression of life available to you. See, I think that's a more exciting proposition and I actually think it's what God is up to. I remember watching an episode of a, a, a cooking show with Gordon Ramsay one time, and he was talking about how he trains up young chefs, and one of the recipes that he gives young chefs to do, just to test to see how they're going to be in the kitchen, kitchen is beef wellington. And the interesting thing about beef wellington is he says, he says, it's not a really hard thing to cook. He said, but you just got to follow the recipe. He says, I'm essentially looking to see if these young chefs can just follow the recipe. He said, look, if you follow this recipe exactly how I give it to you, it will actually turn out amazing every single time. But the problem is that new chefs get in the kitchen, they get a little cocky, they get a little arrogant, they get a little excited, and they start adding to the recipe. Or they take things away from the recipe. And he instantly knows, oh yeah, they're probably not going to make it. He said he can tell within one bite if that chef's actually going to move on to be a Michelin star rated chef, or if they're going to fall to average in the middle of that. Now, you might think that's boring. Just follow the recipe. Just, just do what it says in the middle of this. But here's the thing. When Gordon Ramsay gives you the recipe, it's going to make the best beef Wellington you've ever made. <laughs> and he just says, look, all I want to know right now is if you can follow the recipe. See, what I love is that God has essentially given us the recipe for life. He's saying, hey, here's what I'd love for you to step into. And that the end game which is in the scriptures, is that you would have abundant life and your joy may be complete. Yeah, yeah. See, I don't know a single person in this room who would say, at the end of the day, I would be okay, wouldn't be okay with abundant life and my joy being complete. And that's the beautiful thing about this, that God just says, look, there's nothing really complicated to it. Just follow the recipe and your joy will be complete and you will find yourself living an abundant life. But see, what often happens is that we assume we know better, that we have a better plan, 
that we have a better recipe, that we have some more ingredients that God may have forgotten about or didn't leave into the picture or that he forgot to put into the conversation. And then when we engage this new recipe that we've put into play, we wonder why life doesn't turn out the way that we thought it was supposed to turn out. See, sin is essentially bringing your own recipe into the kitchen that God is attempting to cook in. (laughs) And saying, I know you have the recipe, but what I'd like to cook is this, because this will end up tasting better. And so then we redirect all of our energies and our attentions and our passions towards this new recipe that we bring, because let's be honest, it feels good. It just feels right in the middle of it. And when we start cooking with our own recipe, there's this rush of passion that we get. Like an instantaneous rush of passion in the middle of it. If we didn't, we wouldn't direct our energies towards that place, towards that thing, towards that direction. And so then we get addicted to this momentary rush of passion when we find ourselves doing our own things and it moves us towards addiction. And see, some of us may be addicted to substances, but the matter of fact is that most of us are just more addicted to the rush. The rush that comes with casting off restraint. The rush that comes with doing whatever we want, what feels good to us in relationships. The rush of living as we see it. The rush of numbing out the pain or the disappointment or the hurt or the letdown or the overwhelm. There's a rush that comes with it. And then we find ourselves asking, where did I go wrong? Why didn't the recipe work? And we blame it on God. Because after all, it's his kitchen. But we brought the recipe. There was a Thanksgiving where my mom wanted to try a new yams recipe that she found. And she she made the new yams recipe, and it was really, really good. In fact, our Thanksgivings were filled with usually like 30-plus people at our home. It was the place where everyone came to who didn't have family or didn't have a place to go. And so our Thanksgivings were packed. And so I remember we had this really good new candied yams recipe. Everyone loved it. And, you know, we did what you do on most Thanksgiving. You eat your meal, and then you sit around for a few hours, then you eat another meal. You know what I'm talking about? So we went back in for the other meal, and I was looking at the candied yams, and I thought, man, walnuts, that's such an amazing recipe and ingredient to put in the, re- in the recipe, walnuts. And, and I'm looking around, and I'm stirring it around, and I said, Mom, did you use walnuts? And she said, no, I didn't use walnuts. And I said, there's walnuts all throughout the candied yams. And then we got a closer look, and they actually weren't walnuts. They were little beetles that had gotten into the brown sugar and looked like walnuts when they're baked. And no one knew it, of course, because you couldn't really taste it. It was just a little extra protein in the middle of it. But of course, me being the 10-year-old at the time went through the house screaming, there's beetles in the yams, right? And it was amazing how it instantly shifted from an experience where everyone was like, oh, these yams are so good, I have to get the recipe to, right? (laughs) Because they started out good and they looked good, but eventually they became a nightmare in the middle of this. And this is what happens when we start cooking with our own recipes. This is essentially what happens when we come to God and say, yeah, I know that you've instructed these ways for me to live life, but let me inform you of the new ingredients I want to add. And in James 1, chapter 15, it says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. See, it may look good for a moment, it may feel good for a moment, but in the end, you are redirecting your passion towards 
towards death. Some of the choices that give us the greatest rush of passion in the moment turn out to become our greatest nightmares in the end. And then we wonder, how did we get here? See, because here's the process of what happens. It says this in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 8. It says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. See, he starts out with, here's these group of people who didn't think it was important to understand the recipe for life. They didn't think that was like a really big deal to engage in, to consider when they were making their choices. They didn't necessarily follow the recipe, and the natural result of that is a skewed vision of reality, a skewed way of seeing things, because it says here, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent evil ways of doing, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding. God's righteous, uh, uh, of no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they do not continue to do these things, but approve of those who practice them. See, what happens is that when we cast off the knowledge of God and what he's up to and the recipe that he's given us for life, our, our thinking gets screwed and we start to see the life, life in a different level. And so we start looking out life and say, this looks like a good option over here. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that this new recipe that I'm attempting to bring into life looks like a really, really great option. See, how many times have you found yourself in life saying, I'm going to do what I want and for a moment it feels really good? It feels like freedom. Like, I, like I'm going to live my life how I see fit, and I'm going to make my own choices, and it feels so empowering in the moment. Until later on, when things start going south, and we ask ourselves, how did we ever get here? See, as we redirect our passion towards what the scriptures call sin, we start missing what's there, and it keeps us in this holding pattern, and we actually become blinded to the reality around us, and we start getting confused about life. Well, why am I not experiencing the fullness? Why do I don't have this abundance? Why don't I have the joy that it's talking about? Because we feel good in the moment, and then we find ourselves stuck simultaneously. And I want to show you how this transforms our minds into a tool that that is actually designed to redirect our passions towards life, and it ends up moving us towards a space of confusion. Here's the thing. In life, when we find ourselves in this place where we just want to do what we want and we want to bring our own recipe to the game of life and to live our passion, redirect it where we think it's going to bring us to life, here's all that the enemy has to do is he just says, why don't you direct your passion and your attention and your energy over here? Keep your eyes, keep your attention, keep your energy over here, and don't pay attention to all the other things that are going on around you where life is getting a little screwy. In other words, hey, let's redirect your energy over here towards bitterness, because if you forgive them, you're going to let them off the hook, and it's not going to feel good, but what's going to feel really good is withholding forgiveness and maintaining your power over here. Pay no attention to the bitterness that is actually driving the life out of your body. Let's redirect your energy towards arrogance over here and believing that you're always right, ignoring the feedback that's coming from you and to you the entire time all around you. Let's direct all of your energy towards control and playing the 
victim and missing the places where you are actually empowered to make choices in your life and to move your life forward. Let's redirect your energy towards isolation and hiding and keeping things covered up. Meanwhile, now that you're in the dark, there's all kinds of space to do all kinds of things in your life to bring in judgment and shame and condemnation. Do what you want. It's your life. And we just get distracted by all the places that we are redirecting our energy, pay no attention to the God who is actually attempting to bring you life. In fact, isn't he so controlling? Isn't he so judgmental? Isn't he so non-inclusive? And so we find ourselves saying, oh yeah, pay no attention to the God who is actually attempting to bring you towards life. And once he has you convinced that your passion is best spent on the shiny new thing, you're dead. You will find yourself confused and angry and resentful about life, missing everything around you. In fact, John continues this conversation in 1 John 3, 7. He says, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remain in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right in God is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their neighbor or brother and sister. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage of Scripture, I just think, well, I'm screwed. Right? right, right. I mean, no one who is born of God will sin. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. What do you even do with that, right? <laughs> I mean, I read this and I'm just like, well, do we, do we even move forward? <laughs> it's interesting because it's, when, any, when things seem lost, when things seem confusing, when you find yourself in a space where you're like, I don't know how I got here and I don't know how to get back to life, go back to the original intention. Go back to the original design. Go back to the original recipe. I love in Ephesians 2.10, one of my favorite passages of scripture, it says, for we are God's handiwork. Other passages say masterpiece. In fact, turn to, your, turn to your neighbor right now and just tell them, hey, you're a masterpiece. Just let them know that. Give them a little encouragement. You are a masterpiece, in case you didn't know that, right? So you, you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. You are God's masterpiece created to do good. And see, the, attempt, the, the temptation when we find ourselves stuck in the cycles of sin is to go back to sin management. Don't do that. Minimize that. Don't think that. And there's a part of that, but I, that's, that's like a very small portion of the whole thing. See, because when Beethoven was composing his masterpiece, when he was writing on the piano, he wasn't thinking, I hope I don't make bad music. He was just thinking, how do I create the most beautiful masterpiece that could ever flood into someone's ear? When Picasso was painting, he wasn't thinking, how do I not make hotel art? <laughs> he was saying, how do I communicate the most profound images of love and life and philosophy in a way that is so profound and so beautiful that it will come across? 
Well, when, when beautiful dancers or poets or artists are painting or speaking or moving, they're not thinking, how do I not screw up? They're thinking, how do I communicate and create the most beautiful expressions of life and love and hope and beauty around me? See, when God created you, his conversation wasn't, oh, I hope they don't screw up. His conversation is, oh my gosh, they are created to create the most beauty and the most hope and the most joy and the most life every single place that they go. He wasn't in a conversation thinking, oh man, I hope that they don't mess up. He was saying they're going to create so much beauty in the world. I have filled them with so much passion, and if they're willing to redirect that towards the things of life, it's going to transform everything. See, the passion test isn't just about keeping yourself from doing bad things. It's about redirecting all of your energy and your heart and your soul and your intention and your passion to serve the world and to create good everywhere you go. It's about serving and caring and transforming the world around you. It's about taking all the injustice and fighting it and bringing hope, and in the end, redeeming humanity with the passion of God that lives inside of you and see when you connect to Jesus you do not have to give up a passionate life see it's not about giving up all the fun and becoming some irrelevant prude in the world around you it's about recognizing that without him you've already settled for a life of lower passion that without him, you've already decided that this level of living is not for me. And the sin within us has redirected our passion into death, and he is longing to redeem that, to give it all back to you. See, passion is connected to the object of our love, and you will always become what you love. And when you fall in love with Jesus, the passion of the universe is unlocked within you to go and create good everywhere you go. That your hands and your heart and your life would be an instrument of beauty. And it's not that you never sin. So if you read this passage and you're like, I'm screwed. It's not that you never sin when you're connected to Jesus, but you begin to hate sin. Not because just because it's bad, right? That's a very simplistic view of this because you recognize that it restricts you from living at a higher level of passion. You realize that when you find yourself in sin, it redirects all of the passion that was designed for hope and beauty and love and goodness in the world gets redirected over here towards death and you hate it because you are made to live a passionate life that impacts the world around you. Lastly, passion and suffering are always connected with one another. In fact, they actually mean the same thing. Yesterday, Marla and I started on this project in our backyard. We're putting a, a koi pond in the backyard. And yesterday, we did the fun work of digging out a 550-gallon hole. And I can tell you, I can feel every muscle in my body today. In fact, I can barely grip things because it hurts so much after a full day of digging out the earth. And there was suffering in the middle of that. But I can tell you that there was suffering because I know that something really beautiful is coming next Saturday. 
That's something really exciting. It's something really profound that will bring so much joy and beauty to our home and our kids and our family and the people that come over and hang out in our backyard, that the suffering is going to lead towards life. See, you will either choose your suffering or you will become enslaved to it, one or the other. There is a certain suffering that comes with giving up sin and deciding to redirect your energy towards the things of God and towards to redirect your energy towards creating beauty and transforming the world around you. The releasing your need for control and being right, all is painful. And it comes with a degree of suffering. But let me just say, it far outweighs the suffering that comes when your life is redirected into hopelessness and darkness and death. It, It pales in comparison. There is a suffering that leads to life It's the kind of suffering like the cross, where God himself would redirect all of his energy and his attention and his love and his focus onto you and say, I would rather endure the suffering of this passion for the people I love so that they could experience life here and now so that they could experience the fullness of what it means to be alive, so that you and I could then be free to do the same for others, that we might be those who redirect our passion and our freedom so that beauty would reign on this earth and that God would once again hand us the recipe for life and say, let's go. Let's create something so beautiful. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that You call us to live full, all-in, passionate lives. And God, in that, that you release so much beauty in our lives and hope around us, God. God, forgive us for the places where we've played small, where we've just been in management of not doing the wrong things or making sure we do the right things, but God, that, that we are all eyes on you releasing the things that hold us back and fully stepping into the life you've called us to. This morning, if you're here and you've not yet connected to Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that because here's the thing, is that it is impossible to live a life filled with passion that brings beauty and hope to the world if you haven't yet connected to him. He is the source of life and he is the source of passion. And he will direct your life towards those things that will move you towards beauty and hope and all in aliveness, abundance, and joy. And so this morning, if you're here or if you're online and you've not yet connected to Jesus, I want you to just give you just an opportunity to do that. There's nothing magic about this moment or the words that you're about to pray. It's just you saying, hey, I want to be all in with Jesus because I am committed to living a passionate life that impacts the world around me. And if that's you, I want you just to pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I give you my life. I know that I'm broken and that there's a tendency to redirect my life towards death. I know that you came and you died for me and that you rose from the dead so that I could fully live. So today I choose you and I am all in. Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope that it was a meaningful experience and look forward to having you listen in next week for another conversation from the heart and soul of Humanity Church. You can find more information about our community at www.humanitychurch.com.